the Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. P.A. Jesu Domine. This is a popular popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. History through Pope Colored Glasses. My name is Greg, and this is episode 8.12, Rome, Part 5, Imperator, in which we continue our series dedicated to Catholic worldbuilding, Series 0, with our mini-series on the development of Rome. I'd like to apologize in advance for the recording quality. Uh, studio space is still not quite worked out, so we're trying out a new little niche uh, to see if this can work as a temporary layer with some slightly more muffled road noises in the background. At the end of our last episode, Julius Caesar was murdered by a conspiracy of senators in the theater of Pompey on March 15th, 44 BC. In case any of you need that answer on any standardized test coming up, there you go. There's that fact. The assassins had famously been motivated by fears of Caesar's consolidation of power. Indeed, even though living memory had been a long chain of ambitious men consolidating power for themselves, including Sulla, who had managed the same basic supremacy Caesar had, but almost 40 years earlier, the Romans still hadn't quite gotten used to the idea of rule by one without term limits. Even Sulla had retired after a few years and a slew of reforms. But Caesar's plan of serving as dictator perpetuo, i.e. permanent ruler, had been a bridge too far. It smelled too much like the monarchy the Romans had once rejected and would always, and I do mean always, remember to hate. Indeed, in a thousand years' time from now in our narrative, the Romans would still officially consider their government a republic, thank you very much, despite the thousand years of what historians had come to understand as the Roman Empire, ruled by, well, emperors. But no, seriously, it's a republic, I promise. Kings are bad. Uh, now, perhaps surprisingly, initially, Caesar's assassins were pardoned by the Senate at the urging of none other than Mark Anthony, who had been Caesar's close ally and was his co-consul at the time of his assassination. Anthony had been with Caesar in Gaul before launching his own career in Rome, a career in which he served the interests of his patron, Caesar. As tensions rose between Caesar and Pompey after the deaths of Julia and Crassus, Antony was one of the tribunes, sacrosanct and able to veto any act that wasn't in the interests of Caesar and his faction. I'm going to give you a quick little rundown of the politics here. If you're feeling lost, by all means, go check out the earlier episodes in this Rome miniseries. Since Caesar was representing the Popolare side of things, which roughly corresponds to modern populism, his faction, including Antony, was generally popular with the overall public. But Pompey's side, the Optimates, in a nutshell, the Old Guard, had more control and influence in government, both because they were the Old Guard and because Pompey was on hand in Italy while Caesar was in far-off Gaul, operating through proxies like Antony. As things progressed, Antony's annoying ability to veto any legislation he didn't like was rather inconvenient for the Optimates. Eventually, he was expelled from the Senate by force. 
But as we've seen before, tribunes were sacrosanct, meaning they were untouchable in the literal sense. You couldn't lay hands on them to remove them. So this expulsion from the Senate was a violation. Antony was a tribune. And it seems it was the removal of Antony from the Senate that was the pretext for Caesar crossing the Rubicon and marching on Rome. In those days and later, Antony had acted as Caesar's second-in-command, governing Italy on his behalf, serving as his master of the horse, that is, that second-in-command role, when Caesar was dictator, and serving as his primary general at the Battle of Pharsalus, Pompey's final defeat, with Caesar commanding the right flank and Antony the left. Back to the narrative present, it's this same Antony who has the Senate pardon Caesar's killers, many or probably all of whom were senators, and who initially flees the city, believing he would be caught up in an anti-Caesar purge inspired by Caesar's assassination. But things quickly turn in Antony's favor. Caesar himself is gone, but it's his faction that still has the popular support. And soon, despite the amnesty, it's the assassins like Brutus and Cassius that find themselves fleeing while Antony returns and takes control of the treasury. Things really take a turn when Antony reads Caesar's will. Frustratingly, we don't have a copy of the will, but we do have some details and a description of the impact it had. In his will, Caesar left his garden for public use and enjoyment, along with the cash equivalent to something like 6,000 bucks to everyone in the city. These moves seriously undercut the tyrant rhetoric the assassins had been leaning on, reinforcing Caesar's status in the public imagination as a friend of the people. Worse still, according to the Roman historian Appian, Caesar had Brutus, that chief conspirator, as his alternate heir in the event that something happened to Caesar's primary heir, making Brutus look like someone who had betrayed a friend rather than someone who had attacked an enemy. In short, Caesar's will was a public relations disaster for the conspirators, making Caesar look good, and Brutus, in particular, look awful. Of course, Brutus wasn't doing himself any favors on that front, considering he didn't tend to shy away from doing the same sort of king-smelling things that had gotten fellow elites to turn on Caesar. Uh, for example, Brutus started minting coins with his own dang face on them, which, incidentally, is still a taboo on American currency for much the same we hate kings reason, and while he was minting that currency, he went ahead and had it stamped, listing himself as imperator, a word we can read back on in eyebrow-raising ways. I mean, this is Brutus, though it's important to remember that being emperor, as we understand it, wasn't really a thing yet, so our understanding of that title isn't what he meant, but, I mean, still. It's fascinating to note that none other than Brutus adopted the title that would eventually go down in history as Emperor. Alright, enough about Antony, Caesar's right-hand man, and Brutus, Caesar's increasingly unpopular assassin slash alternate heir slash possible illegitimate son. Oh, yeah, we nearly forgot about that angle. Uh, in any case, let's talk about Caesar's actual heir. Gaius Octavius was born on September 23rd, 63 BC, to another chap named Gaius Octavius. The Romans were generally very fond of naming children after themselves. And, more importantly for our purposes, Aetia Balba, the niece of Julius Caesar through her mother, Julia Minor, who was Caesar's sister. Incidentally, 
Etiobalba was occasionally called Etiobalba Secunda, being the second of three sisters, all named Etiobalba, in honor of their father, Marcus Aetius Balbus, because that was how Roman naming convention tended to work for daughters, like I mentioned last episode. You just count them off. So it was this guy, a teenager at the time of Caesar's assassination, and his great-nephew by way of his sister's daughter, who was named as Caesar's primary heir. The will also arranged for Caesar's posthumous adoption of Octavius, who ran with the association and officially changed his name to, well, Gaius Julius Caesar, though most historians know him at this point as Octavian, and for some simplicity, we'll use that name for him for now, though he'll get a more famous name before we're done here. You've probably worked out that there's going to be fallout between Caesar's old allies and his assassins. Indeed, we're heading into another civil war, this one called the Liberator Civil War, somewhat surprisingly, since with a name like that, you'd think the Liberators, that is, Caesar's assassins, won and wrote the history. Uh, spoiler alert, they did not. We're going to do some time hopping and perspective shifting for the next little while to get a feel for how things ended up with each of the major players in the aftermath of Caesar's assassination in the years to come. First off, let's go ahead and start with the assassins themselves. Brutus and Cassius. Brutus and fellow liberator Cassius were ultimately defeated at two battles in Philippi by the men and forces of the Second Triumvirate in October of 42 BC, two and a half years after Julius Caesar's assassination. Brutus lasted a bit longer than Cassius, who had committed suicide on October 2nd after they lost the first battle. But on October 23rd, Brutus too committed suicide after his remaining forces lost a second engagement. Sorry guys, tough luck. Now let's go ahead and start digging into the second triumvirate. Starting with, who cares about Lepidus? Now, I mentioned a second triumvirate that defeated the Liberators, but I've only given two obvious members, Mark Antony and Octavian. Putting the tri in triumvirate, like the tri in triangle, was one Marcus Aemilius Lepidus, who really was a big name at the time. Like Mark Antony, he had served terms as Caesar's co-consul and as his master of the horse. But in terms of historical narrative, Lepidus works out to an also-ran, and if it weren't for one tidbit, he'd be an also-ran for our podcast. Not me. I don't care about Lepidus. We do want to care about Lepidus a bit, because with the death of Julius Caesar, there was a vacancy in the office of Pontifex Maximus, that head priesthood of the state religion. Lepidus ended up with that title as the triumvirs sorted things out. After Lepidus, it became one of the many titles the emperors would hold until the old state religion was abandoned in favor of Christianity. But if we reach out and massage things a bit, that wasn't the end of the Pontifex Maximus title, because during the Renaissance, when the classical world was very much in vogue, the popes brought it back, and it's still the main title they use on inscriptions for statues and fountains and such, as well as, I kid you not, it's, it's their Twitter handle. Yes, if you want to follow the pope on Twitter, it's at Pontifex. Just like Lepidus. Kind of. All right. Enough with Lepidus. Who's next? Sextus Pompey? 
Uh, remember how early on in his career, Pompey was tasked with fighting the last stubborn Marian general, Sertorius, on behalf of Sulla, years after Marius himself had died? No? Well, anyways, there's a similar coda to Pompey's own faction. Years after Sulla, oops, I mean Caesar, defeated Marius, oops, I mean Pompey, Pompey's son, Sextus Pompey, was still in control of Sicily, not to mention Sardinia and Corsica. Awkwardly sandwiched in the middle of the triumvirs, just like he is in this episode, a Sextus Pompey wasn't fully ejected until September of 36, 12 years after his father's death, 8 years after Caesar's, and 6 years after Brutus and Cassius had fallen to the triumvirs. This lone holdout had earned his status, for example, having defeated Octavian's navy at Messina the year before. But in the end, Octavian borrowed Lepidus's legions to add to his own, and consolidated his power quite effectively, ejecting Sextus Pompey with the help of Lepidus's troops, and then refusing to hand the troops back to Lepidus, who was then stripped of his remaining holdings. All of the western Mediterranean now belonged to the 26-year-old Octavian. If that sounds young, then for what it's worth, he turned 27 the next day. Personally, I might have waited a day for all this to make it a proper happy birthday to me, but that's because I'm willing to wait perhaps a bit more than the ambitious young Caesar. Octavian has consolidated control in the West, but in the words of Master Yoda, there is another. Mark Antony. We talked about Mark Antony's early career already. By the time of Caesar's death, he was his co-consul and close ally. He had been delayed at the door of the Senate the day of the assassination to keep him from physically intervening. Apparently, Antony was in pretty good shape and could have complicated things. He did complicate things anyways, after the fact. Despite initially working with the Senate to formally pardon the conspirators, he took up Caesar's mantle and worked to keep the Caesarian faction under him. It was soon an uphill battle, though, since Caesar had officially adopted Octavian, and his will made clear that Octavian was to be his heir. Antony kept the inheritance money from Octavian, but Octavian borrowed heavily to carry out the donations specified in the will nevertheless, increasing his support. Things went to open war the year after Caesar's assassination, when Antony sought to remove the governor of Gaul against the orders of the Senate. Octavian joined the senatorial troops against Antony, serving under the consuls for the year, who both ended up dead, one a bit suspiciously, suddenly succumbing to what had been deemed minor wounds that he seemed to be recovering from. Now worse in terms of military leadership changing for the senatorial faction, uh, at this point best represented by Cicero, um, Octavian soon switched sides and joined Mark Antony and his mate Lepidus. Together, they officially formed the Second Triumvirate on November 27th, 43 BC. Tasked with confirming the Republic, and given full dictatorial powers for five years to complete that mission, well, we'll see how that goes. In any event, yes, the second triumvirate, unlike the first, was an official legal entity. And an effective one, too. With the defeat of the quote-unquote liberators in 42 BC, and the defeat of Sextus Pompey in 36, the triumvirs were in control of all territory under the Romans. Of course, as I mentioned, by the time the dust of Sextus Pompey had settled, Lepidus himself was out of the triumvirate. 
He had given his legions to Octavian, and then it boldly demanded Sextus Pompey's conquered territory be given to him, since Octavian had nicked some of his assigned lands early on. In response, Lepidus's old legions mutinied and went over to Octavian's side. They knew where their bread was buttered. So now we're back to where we left off a few minutes ago. That summary may have sounded somewhat familiar. I left off the mutiny bit earlier. In any case, Octavian now rules the west, Antony the east. Generally, they're able to get along well enough for a while. Sure, there had been some tough times between the two, like when Antony's brother, and also his wife, yes, Antony's wife, a woman named Fulvia, went to war with Octavian. You see, Fulvia thought Antony should be the sole ruler of Rome, rather than having to share it with Octavian. So in 41 BC, she teamed up with his brother, Lucius Antonius, and went to war with Octavian over it. The net result of this conflict, known as the Perusine War, not the Peruvian War as my spellcheck suggested, was that Octavian ended up in sole control of the city, while Fulvia died in exile. Don't mess with Octavian. Fulvia's death allowed the situation to be smoothed over, though, both because it gave Octavian and Antony someone they could pin the blame for the war on, and also because, since she had been Antony's wife, her dying meant that Antony was available for a nice little marriage alliance with Octavian now, which went down when Antony married Octavian's sister, Octavia Minor, who had actually been widowed herself recently enough that she was actually still pregnant with her first husband's child. But, uh, eh, those Romans. Of course, there was already a little bit of a shadow to this marriage alliance, since Antony had had no problem siring two children with another woman while married to his first wife. And not just any other woman. Cleopatra, pharaoh of Egypt, former queen and sometime lover of none other than Julius Caesar. Cleopatra had had a child with Julius as well, at least as she told it, which she underscored by naming him Caesarian. Now, Caesar never formally acknowledged Caesarian, but he never denied him either, and Julius Caesar's relationship with Cleopatra was publicly known. Antony took things a step further by publicly acknowledging that the twins Cleopatra bore him were his own, though, as with Caesar, it's my understanding that the relationship wasn't seen as adultery in Roman eyes since Cleopatra was a foreigner. Now that said, the Romans definitely did look down on foreigners, but Cleopatra was a foreigner with a lot to be said for her in Roman eyes. Her dynasty had been founded by none other than Alexander the Great, who was greatly respected by the Romans and whose tomb was visited by both Julius Caesar and Octavian. Additionally, she ruled Egypt, heading a civilization that was more ancient in the time of the Romans than the Romans are in our time. Now, this relationship that was effectively a marriage alliance between Antony and Cleopatra served both of them well. They loaned one another troops and warred as allies. And in the fall of 34 BC, Antony announced his plan to give large swaths of the Roman Empire to his children via Cleopatra, who was apparently acknowledged as his wife around this time, which did cross a line with the Romans considering Antony was still married to Octavia, Octavian's sister, as part of their marriage alliance. But not to worry, Antony solved that problem by divorcing Octavia the next year. Which wasn't even the boldest move he had made, considering when he announced his donation plans, he had included 
not only his own now three children by Cleopatra, but Caesarian as well, simultaneously proclaiming Caesarian as the true heir to Julius Caesar, being his natural son, not his adopted great-nephew as Octavian was. You can imagine how, named in that will that Mark Antony had read, Octavian felt about all this. When the land donations were sent to the Senate, the Senate refused to ratify them, and on the last day of 33 BC, the second triumvirate, which had been renewed once for another five-year term, officially expired. When war came, it was technically in the form of a declaration of war on Cleopatra, which suited Octavian's propaganda just fine. He'd announced Antony for having abandoned Rome for a foreign culture and a foreign queen, and add to his case, he stole Antony's will from its safekeeping in the Temple of Vesta and leaked its contents publicly. The favor Antony showed to his children via Cleopatra may have been bad in the Senate's eyes, but much worse was Antony's wish, spelled out in that will, that he be buried with Cleopatra in Egypt rather than in Rome. Now, not surprisingly, when the Senate declared war on Cleopatra, her husband Antony came to her aid. He was accordingly stripped of all his Roman titles, though approximately 40% of the Senate, including both consuls, broke off, siding with Antony and raising troops of their own. When combined with Cleopatra's troops, the forces were roughly equal something like 200,000 troops on either side. Octavian had a real ace up his sleeve, though, or really one that was already fairly renowned, so I guess not up his sleeve, but just plain on the table. I'm talking about his go-to general, Marcus Vespasianus Agrippa. It had been Agrippa who had defeated Sextus Pompey, and sure enough, it was Agrippa who shifted the war solidly in Octavian's favor at the naval Battle of Actium, on the 2nd of December in 31 BC. Incidentally, it was also Agrippa who built the original Pantheon in commemoration of the victory at Actium. The Pantheon in Rome still bears his name, even though it's not the original, since back in the day restoring something included restoring the original dedicatory inscription. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Antony has lost the Battle of Actium, yes, but he's still at large, though frankly not for long. He dies within a year, committing suicide in the final days of a siege of Alexandria. His wife, Cleopatra, soon followed his example, and the now 17-year-old Caesarian was executed on the orders of his cousin, Octavian. Now, Octavian stood unchallenged. Notably, the Egyptians also now saw him as their pharaoh, giving Octavian power over Egypt as a personal possession rather than as something given to him via the Senate. That fact alone, and the massive influence it carried, goes a long way to explain how the emperors, as we understand them, came to be. After all this, marching into Rome as undisputed master, Octavian and his right hand, Marcus Agrippa, were elected as consuls by the Senate. After a bit more consolidation of power, on January 17th, 27 BC, Octavian formally restored the Republic, presenting himself to the Senate and offering to resign, much like Sulla had before him. 
Now, I think it's fair to say that this move might have been a bit of political theater, considering the Senate not only declined Octavian's resignation, but turned around and offered him even more new powers in that fancy new title I teased earlier that you may have been waiting for, Augustus. Now, let's go ahead and freeze things here for a few minutes, because we're at a historical crossroad. Despite the official talk of restoring the Republic, uh, yeah, most historians agree that pretty much the opposite was happening here, and they tend to peg this moment as the end of the Roman Republic and the beginning of the Roman Empire. In any event, any way you slice it, a whole lot of threads are coming together here, and you could do worse than to survey all the moving parts using Augustus, as we're going to call Octavian moving forward, and his various names and titles as a general framework for your survey. After all, the classical world is pretty much revolving around Augustus at this point. Of course, you can also probably do better than using that approach of using Augustus as your lens, but this is my show, and I've decided to do it this way, so let's go ahead and start the survey. Gaius. We're touching base on Gaius first because, well, it was Augustus's first name, at least the first listed among his names given at birth. But Romans rarely went by their first names, in part because, for the most part, Roman first names, called prinomen, were too common to be a practical way to tell people apart. In the last hundred years of our narrative, for example, we had Gaius Gracchus, then Gaius Marius, then Gaius Julius Caesar, and now Gaius Octavianus. It was basically the John of the classical Roman world. Next up, Octavianus, or, if you will, Octavian. If Gaius was something like Augustus's first name, Octavianus was like his last name. It marked the family, or gens, he belonged to. As I believe I mentioned earlier, it's generally listed as Octavian rather than Octavianus for some reason, and of course, it's the name we used for Augustus until the switchover to, well, Augustus, a minute ago. In terms of meaning, Octavianus slash Octavian basically meant eighth, which could have been related to the numbering rather than naming system we talked about in the context of Roman women's names last episode, or it could also perhaps have been a nod to which month someone had been born in. Of course, Augustus himself was neither the eighth born, as near as I can tell, he was an only child, nor was he born in the eighth month, though that one's not too far off since he was born in September. If it was one of those carnival games about guessing things about you, that probably would have been counted close enough. You'd get a prize. But no, whatever the origin, the eighth thing was about an ancestor, much like last names today. Thurinus. Now, this one hasn't gotten any mention until now, and it's not going to get mentioned after this now either. But early on in Augustus's life, his father earned the honorific title Thurinus, and the honorific was also passed along to his son, little Gaius Octavianus, now Gaius Octavianus Thurinus. This is all a bit muddled. The historian Suetonius, writing well over a hundred years later, explains that Augustus's father had earned the Thurinus label during the emperor's youth, when the elder Gaius Octavianus had defeated a band of slaves who had broken off from Spartacus's forces and had wound up near the town of Thurii. The only problem with this explanation, apart from its location between tales of Augustus's haunted birthplace and of fortune-telling via birds, 
is that Spartacus died almost a decade before Augustus was born. Frankly, Suetonius seems to be playing a bit fast and loose with the facts here, but really it doesn't matter all that much, because Thurinus is hardly the most important of Augustus's various names and titles. Julius. It's still a bit shocking that perhaps the most critical single-name update in Augustus's long life, yes, more important than the Augustus bit, came unexpectedly when he was a teenager. But so it was. Julius Caesar's will, uh, Gaius Julius Caesar, that is, there's that name again. As we've discussed, Caesar's will included posthumously adopting the young Augustus, and he embraced that mantle wholeheartedly, including taking on Caesar's name as his own. The Gaius part was already familiar. The Julius part identified him as part of the powerful Gens Julia that we've talked about here and there. And as for the Caesar part, well, let's take a look at that. Caesar. We talked some about the origins of this one already last episode, so today let's focus on its future. I mean, it doesn't get turned into a flipping month, like Julius and Augustus, but from the long line of Caesars through the remainder of the Roman Empire, to the Kaisers of German fame, to the Tsars of Russia and Eastern Europe, the name Caesar became synonymous with autocracy for literally thousands of years to come. In fact, there's still a former Tsar alive at the time of this recording. If you can name him, you'll receive an honorary Tsardom for podcast purposes. Now, this is all very ironic, considering in theory, the achievement of Augustus and his successors was the restoration and then the preservation of the Republic. And no, I'm never going to stop chuckling at that notion. Ah, yeah, monarchy bad. Yep. Alright, so far we've talked about Augustus's birth name, a name his father might have earned that eventually just kind of got ignored in favor of his posthumously adopting father, and of course the names of that posthumously adopting father. Now let's set all those aside, because we've got a fair bit yet to go. Now, next up is more surreal, but it's very interesting seen with the much-neglected, of late, uh, Christocentric Pope-colored glasses. Deiphilius. That is, son of God. Well, not really. Son of a divine one is probably a better translation, given that Roman religion distinguished between gods of their traditional pantheon and people who had been deified. And boy oh boy was Julius Caesar ever deified after his assassination. In fact, a new flamen, a top-tier priesthood you might recall from young Julius Caesar's activities, a new flamen was set up, dedicated to serving the cult of the deified Caesar, which actually set him up as one of the highest-ranking gods in the whole Roman religion. This was only the fourth flamen, the others traditionally served the top three divinities, Jupiter, Mars, and Quirinus. And if you don't recall Quirinus, well, we haven't mentioned him by that name, but we actually did cover Quirinus in our first episode on Rome. Quirinus, also known as Romulus. So getting back to it, with his adoptive father officially deified and even a new flamen set up to support the new cult, it is only fitting that Augustus also go ahead and update his name to reflect his on-paper divine lineage. We really should linger here a moment, because similar to the whole Pontifex Maximus thing, 
This is an area where one might see parallels between what the Romans got up to and what the Roman Catholic Church would eventually get up to. I've got canonization in mind, that being a process where someone is declared to be a saint, that is, a holy person who is definitely living on in heaven, who might intercede for us and bend God's ear in our favor if we ask them to, someone whose story was a good example for us to imitate. Now, we'll go into canonization in much more detail in a future episode. For now, this just seemed like as good a time as any to go ahead and shoehorn in a Catholic topic like I do. Uh, you're welcome. Now, next up is that thorny topic we've kept coming back to in this series. Imperator. In 38 BC, so something like six years after Julius Caesar's assassination and four years after the son of a divine being upgrade through Caesar's official deification, presumably after some reasonably large military engagement, Augustus's troops hailed him as Imperator. This was the traditional honor given by the troops for their victorious general, and it was what made one eligible for a full, proper triumph upon return to the city. Augustus eventually boasted 21 such acclamations, though he didn't bother going through with that many official triumphs to follow up on them. And unless I miss something significant, which is always possible and I welcome corrections, from the Liberator Civil War to his death, Augustus also consistently held the similar-sounding and related concept of imperium over one area or another. Imperium being that supreme authority over a particular theater of war and or group of soldiers. Augustus had the full authority to determine who under him lived or died, while no one had similar power over him. Now, perhaps surprisingly, technically Augustus's imperium was not unlimited at any point, though. For example, Italy itself always technically remained under the imperium of the Senate, while Augustus took care of the further-flung provinces which was where the troops were anyways, so when push came to shove, those would be the provinces you'd want to have under your complete control anyways. So, imperium by legal practice, imperator by acclamation of the troops, all of this melded together in the person of Augustus, defining the definitely not king I promise or a republic, no seriously stop laughing please, role of emperor finally getting towards the full connotations of that word as it's conventionally understood in the modern sense. Indeed, the Latin word for emperor is imperator, that same title bestowed by the troops on leaders deemed worthy at least as far back as Scipio Africanus and definitely earlier. So, as you can see, it does get a little messy when we try to track down who the first emperor was, especially considering the Romans really did very much insist the Republic never ended. Was Scipio the first emperor? Probably not. Uh, but he was proclaimed imperator, and he held imperium during the war against Carthage. Was Julius Caesar emperor? Most historians would say no, but the Romans certainly saw him in the same light as they saw Augustus, for better or for worse. It's muddy, but generally, historians have decided that it's just plain easiest to treat Augustus as the first emperor and January of 27 BC as the beginning of the Roman Empire, when, as we saw, Augustus got that fancy new title, which was, well, Augustus. Now, somewhat like Imperator, but with fewer caveats, 
there is still an English word that basically conveys the meaning. August, as in respected, impressive, and perhaps also distinguished. This was a bit of a made-up title the Senate had come up with to emphasize that though the Republic was definitely on paper restored, there was also a new structure to things, with the distinguished, impressive, and respective, heck, the August, Augustus, running the show, at least where he has Imperium, not in Italy, mind you. Now, Augustus wasn't the only title Augustus got as part of that arrangement he set up with the Senate in 27. There was also Princeps. Now, Princeps is a surprisingly interesting one. If you haven't studied Roman history, you might be a fair bit uncertain about it. Certainly, Imperator slash Emperor has a familiar feel to it, as do, frankly, Julius and Augustus in the form of July and August. But Princeps. Not so much necessarily, though perhaps things are clearer when we think about the word prince. Yes, like Tsar slash Tsar slash Kaiser slash Tsar. This one ended up having some staying power and is even still in use today. Just ask Prince Philip. Unlike Augustus, Princeps actually was a title that had already been around when the Senate decided that Augustus should not only not retire, but should definitely get a whole bunch of cool new perks. The Princeps Senatus, that is, the first man of the Senate, was the most prestigious position within the Senate. It was the first in order of precedence. The Princeps was also the senator with the right to speak first on all topics, allowing them to set the tone of the debate. The office had apparently wound up with some cobwebs on it during the upheavals of the previous several decades, but it was revived with a bang when it was handed over to Augustus. This wasn't taking the role out of the Senate, either. Augustus was a senator. He had been made one years earlier at Cicero's urging, back when he was the young Octavian, allied with the Senate against the ominous figure of Mark Antony in the wake of Julius Caesar's assassination. And now, as Augustus, the former Octavian was not just a senator, but he was princeps the first among them, with all the dignity that implied. And the Romans took their dignitas very seriously. As you can imagine, Princeps was far from the only existing official title Augustus collected. Big-name titles like Consul came and went through his life, more often coming than going, of course, but when Augustus wanted to reward a dutiful and effective ally like Agrippa, he had the means to do so. It helped the consulships were generally shared, so even though Augustus was consul 13 times, there was plenty of room for others, including three consulships for the aforementioned Agrippa, who as near as I can tell is the only person other than Augustus himself who was awarded multiple consulships during this period. Which, considering Augustus reigned for over 40 years as emperor, and there were at least two consulships every year, often more to really squeeze in those extra spots for favoritism and glory building? Well, there were a lot of different consuls in the reign of Gaius, Julius, Caesar, Augustus, Deiphilius, Princeps. And you know what? Let's pause for a moment to consider those extra consuls that were squeezed in, as they were in each year. Called suffect consulships, these would take over mid-year after the consuls who had kicked off the year, 
and after whom the year was named, that is, the quote-unquote ordinary consuls, resigned to make way for them. There was certainly more prestige associated with being an ordinary consul, but turning what had once been an unusual step to cover the remainder of a term when someone died in office into a standard post certainly allowed Augustus to grant more favors while still accumulating plenty of power and dignity for himself. This creation of posts to keep ambitious courtiers happy is something of a pattern among institutions in general, and it's certainly something we'll see the popes themselves doing down the road. You know, once we get to actually talking about popes. Now, Augustus didn't always have to be consul himself, because even when he wasn't consul, he still had tremendous power through other offices. I'm just going to very briefly give a nod to the office of censor he already has by this point, simply because I think it's absolutely fantastic in a dark humor sort of way that the government office officially in charge of quote-unquote public morality was functionally the official whose job it was to make sure that the rich got richer and the rabble stayed in their place. Public morality. The idea of upward mobility was pretty seriously verboten in Roman eyes. But more important than censor, more important than consul, really the cream of the crop in terms of all the various titles Augustus gradually accumulated for himself was that of Tribune of the Plebs. Now, if you'll recall, the Tribune post was a significant product of the conflict of the orders that took place in the early Republic. See Rome, Part 1, all vias lead to Italia, if you like. It was also some seriously uppity tribunes of the plebs who really properly kicked off the long hundred-plus years of pretty well-constant factional strife that culminated in the end of the Republic under Augustus. That was the Gracchi brothers we talked about in Rome, Part 3, The War Within. Now, tribunician power, officially handed over in 23 BC, not only made Augustus and subsequent emperors sacrosanct, basically, again, meaning it was a sin in the Roman religion to touch or obstruct them, but that also gave them the power to reject, that is, veto, basically anything anyone else did. Really, I think it's fair to say by the time Caesar officially received tribunician powers, this was all basically already the case, and it simply made official what was already a reality. But then again, making things nice and formal legally does give them even more staying power, including giving them a real chance of carrying on from one person to another. After all, Caesar Augustus is effectively immortal in the sense that he's not going to be forgotten, but he was still a mortal man. Now, normally, that would be a halfway decent segue to one of the standard topics to go through in any overview of Augustus his succession was. But really, I think we've got a clear enough picture of the man that we can invoke moving forward when appropriate without worrying about all that succession drama. Augustus's succession journey is covered in plenty of other podcasts. If you want to look into it, pretty much everyone else who does Augustus covers it in more detail than I'm about to. For our purposes, suffice it to say that Augustus keeps outliving his designated heirs, including our new old friend Agrippa who had dutifully married one of Augustus's daughters, Julia. After a few false starts, the widowed Julia is eventually married off to Caesar's eventual successor, Tiberius. But that's getting ahead of things. 
We're going to leave off the topic of succession because shortly after the death of Agrippa, while the now aging Augustus is at the height of his rule, including becoming Pontifex Maximus, by the way, after Lepidus's eventual death, something else entirely has quietly happened just outside Augustus's domain in the client kingdom of Judea. Because, though of course he didn't know it himself, Augustus lived long enough to see the calendars roll over from the years before Christ into the year, or years, of our Lord. Tune in next time when we turn our focus back to the Israelites and the Hasmonean kingdom, which had basically just been established thanks to the Maccabean revolt last time we were over there. Thanks, as always, to sound technician Billy, logo designer Russ, the ever-patient Vice Pope, Mrs. Popular History. We'll see you all in a few weeks for episode 8.13, Prepare the Way. If you want to contact the show, you can reach us at popularhistory at gmail.com or get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at popularhistory. That's popular with an E. It's a Pope pun! <laughs> <laughs>